Everyone needs an estate plan. That's why FindLaw worked with lawyers from across the country and employed Thomson Reuters' industry-leading form automation technology to create affordable, customizable, do-it-yourself estate planning documents. Forms available include a last will and testament, healthcare directive and living will, and financial power of attorney. You can purchase a form individually, or you can bundle all three for a 10% discount. Both individual and couples packages are available. FindLaw's estate planning forms are backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can update your finished estate plan for free for up to a year after purchase. There is no time like the present to start estate planning and get peace of mind, especially when you can do it from the comfort of home and at a fraction of the cost of going to an attorney. To get started, head to findlaw.com, and at the top of the page, click on Legal Forms and Services. Welcome to Fine Laws Don't Judge Me, the show about the law in real life. I'm Laura Temme, and I'm hanging out with Andy Leonetti and Joe Fawbush. Hi, guys. Well, now we don't know who's going to... Oh, no, you don't know what to do because I didn't say it individually? Oh, We geez. need direction, Laura. Come <laughs> on. Perfect. I don't even want to redo it. Uh, we've got a really interesting topic to talk about today. In March, 49-year-old Guy Reffitt of Wiley, Texas, became the first person to be found guilty on charges related to the January 6th breach of the United States Capitol. Oh, this topic will never, <laughs> I know. ever, ever die. I don't think we'll ever stop talking about the 2020 election. Season 12 of Don't <laughs> Judge Me, we'll still be talking about... We'll still be talking about this. <laughs> That's so sweet that you think we're going to be doing this that long. Um, a jury deliberated for just two hours before finding Refit guilty on all five federal charges that he was facing. He is scheduled to be sentenced on June 8th, where he could be given up to 60 years in prison. So today we're going to talk about what made this trial unique, what it means for the hundreds of other people facing charges relating to January 6th, and some comments made by the judge and other people about the 2020 election and President Trump's involvement in January 6th and what that means for some future prosecutions as well. Listeners... <laughs> We we know that some of you are sick of 2020 election. We know that some of you, yeah. weirdly enough, cannot get enough of it. So that is who that, so, that's who we're talking yeah. to today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and something important to keep in mind as we talk about some of these cases relating to January 6th is that while there are hundreds of people who are who have been charged based on their actions that day, it's sort of a spectrum. What actions were those? <laughs> well, Andy, I'm so glad you asked. You know, showing up to the Capitol, banging on the windows, breaking stuff, hurting people. You all saw it on TV. I'm not going to get into the details, but I will say, yeah, there's there's a spectrum of people's involvement. You know, you have people who seemingly showed up with a plan to do a certain thing. Bad things. Things that rhyme with schminsurrection. <laughs> Apparently, that's my favorite bit on this show. I'm just going to keep doing it. And then there are people who seemingly went to a protest and kind of got caught up in the crowd. It seems that Guy Reffitt falls into the former. The sort of underlying facts of his case are that he drove from his home in Texas to D.C. to attend the demonstrations that were held by Donald Trump on the day that Congress was set to certify Joe Biden's win in the 2020 election. And he traveled with what he called full, this is a quote, full battle rattle. And apparently that means a handgun, body armor and a helmet, an AR-15 style rifle, flex cuffs, and other kind of scary things. It was called a full battle rattle? Yeah, so that was from text messages between him and some um, some three percenter buddies, apparently. Uh, what's a three percenter? So the Texas three percenters are 
a militia group. It's hard to explain because the the story that they base it on is not true. It seems that the name comes from this idea that only 3% of Americans fought against the British during the revolution. However, I'll just go on record and say that that is not true. But that's that's the idea is it this sort of patriotic thing of of being in this minority of people who are willing to stand up yeah cool so so right from the bat they're setting themselves up as revolutionaries yeah definitely so Refit was at the demonstrations he was at the capitol he did not actually make it inside the capitol building he was pepper sprayed by police while he climbed the stairs but listening to him listening to this man talk first of all recorded himself on a zoom call after the fact talking to his buddies are you gonna live I mean, you drive all the way from Texas with full <laughs> battle rattle. <laughs> and you're going to let a little pepper spray stop you? <laughs> I know, I know. It's no, it's really interesting, though, because it's it's all about the spin with these guys. Because I listened to an NPR report where they, they had audio of a Zoom call that he recorded with his buddies afterwards, where he's, he's describing this interaction that he had with a Capitol Police officer. And how she you know, shot him with non-lethal rounds and they just, he was wearing body armor, so they just kind of bounced off. And I don't even know how to say it without getting bleeped. The way he tells it, he was doing a little smack talk and saying like, you know, you're going to need a bigger gun and whatever. And then somebody, another officer comes around the corner with pepper spray and just drenches him. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, he's laughing as he's telling people this. It's it's really kind of bizarre. I would have I but... ki- <laughs> kicked that guy's ass if, uh, if other people yeah. weren't holding it back. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah. But what's interesting is that based on on descriptions from the trial of the video footage, well, and the other thing is he he had a GoPro on his helmet the whole time he was there. Oh, so like there's that. video of all of this. And after he gets pepper sprayed and kind of goes down and he can't he can't keep moving forward, he starts waving people past him. And the crowd sort of seeing this happen sort of surges and overwhelms the officers. And that was when they they made it all the way to the the windows of the building. And so, yeah, like I said, when he when he got home, he seemed pretty happy with his involvement. He laughed with people describing his standoff with Capitol Police. But little did he know his son had reported him to an FBI tip line two weeks earlier. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, because his son, who was, uh, I believe, 18 at the time, he's 19 now, was so worried about the things his dad was saying at home after the election. He kept talking about how he was going to do something big on January 6th and bring his gun and, quote, take the Capitol. And so he started secretly recording his father and eventually turned those recordings over to the FBI. That's a brave thing to do for a 18-year-old, yeah. actually. Mm-hmm. That's, that's impressive. Yeah, I mean, I can only imagine the the effect that all of this has had on on this young man. He, from what I understand, almost immediately moved out on his own, is kind of estranged from his family. But yeah, felt really strongly that that his father had committed a crime and that he needed to report it. Was he already on the FBI's radar when he went to the Capitol? The tip came in about two weeks before before the attack on the Capitol, and the son received a response from the FBI after the fact, Uh. which was the case for a lot of people. I mean, very, very few people were arrested on the day. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody went home and then was being tracked down via social media footage and things like that. So yeah, the FBI did eventually follow up. They started having meetings with, um, with his son Jackson and 
took all this video evidence from him and eventually arrested him and charged him with five federal crimes. They were trespassing on Capitol property, obstruction of an official proceeding, interfering with police, transporting weapons across state lines and carrying them onto Capitol grounds, and obstruction of justice. Obstruction of an official proceeding sounds just nebulous enough to (laughs) really get you. Specifically, it was obstructing the Congress's um, count of the electoral votes. Mm -hmm. The other interesting one is the obstruction of justice charge, where that can mean all kinds of different things. Mm -hmm. In his case, it was specifically about witness tampering because he, before he was arrested, I can't remember if this one was recorded or not, but he told his family, if you turn me in, you're a traitor and you know what happens to traitors, traitors get shot. And it sounds like the wife and daughter didn't really take it seriously, but the son did because he, as he probably should have, because he was the one unbeknownst to everybody else who was recording all of this and was already talking to the FBI at that point. At trial, the prosecution presented what they called a mountain of evidence. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've already mentioned there was tons of video evidence. The son secretly recorded him and he recorded himself. There were text messages. There were four days of testimony, including his son who testified for the prosecution. They also had testimony from another three percenter, which is interesting. Oh, (laughs) very interesting and very patriotic, I might add. What I found really interesting about this as far as trial strategy, and and I guess I'll just take this moment to talk to the audience a bit about something that surprised me when I went to law school is that when you get to a trial, there literally are no surprises. To put it in a, you know, in my passions, it's all theater. It's all a play that is put on for the jury. And so for whatever reason, the the defense kept their role in this pretty minimal. Guy Reffitt's defense team, their opening statement was only three minutes long, and their overall argument was just kind of Uh, This guy likes to brag. You can't take him seriously. They claimed that he did not actually bring a gun to the Capitol, but they didn't have anything to counter all of the video evidence that seemed to indicate that he did. And then there was sort of a half-hearted argument about how he might have been mixing Xanax and alcohol. Another half-hearted argument relating to his son. They're trying to point to, oh, maybe he's doing this for money or attention. And he did set up a GoFundMe after he moved out of his family's house um, because he's 18 years old and suddenly estranged from his family. The prosecution asked him about this when he was on the stand and he flatly denied that he was doing any of this for for money or attention. And interestingly, the defense did not call a single witness, including Refit himself, which, of course, he has the constitutional right not to do. No one is required to testify when they're facing charges. And moreover, prosecutors can't point to that and tell the jury, see, this person's not testifying. They must be guilty. In fact, they can't comment on it at all. And that comes from a 1965 Supreme Court case. Most criminal defendants do not testify at their own trial. Absolutely. Well, and it comes down to strategy, because as soon as you put yourself on the stand, then you open yourself up to be cross-examined and who knows what might come out. So I wasn't super surprised to see that he did not that he did not testify. But the fact that no one did for the defense, I found interesting. So, yeah, I'm having a hard time understanding their legal defense because you mentioned something about like being under the influence. um, Mm -hmm. But my understanding is you can absolutely trespass even if you're drunk. Right. In fact, people do it all the time. They they go hand in hand, I believe. (laughs) And obstruct an official proceeding. I mean, is there a worry that like any witness they would have called? I mean, the prosecutor just could have, U.S. attorney could have just said yes or no. Do you believe that the 
Tree of Liberty sometimes <laughs> needs to be refreshed, and watered with the blood of tyrants. And if that person says yes, they all they have to do is look at the all they have to do is look I mean, at the yeah, jury that, and shrug I their shoulders. And I think that that the defense did, especially when when we think about that spectrum of of defendants that I mentioned earlier. This one was a particularly steep hill for the defense to climb. I think mm-hmm. they they were yeah. Who would they, would they would they call the guy that put his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk? Uh, yeah, the QAnon shaman. Or the QAnon shaman. Oh man, <laughs> I just I I wish I could stop talking about these people. So this was the first this was the first jury conviction in this case because because really the last several mm-hmm. months we've seen a lot of we've seen a lot of guilty pleas. But there's there's a lot left. Yeah. So more than 750 people have been charged so far in the FBI's investigation. And I think over 200 have already entered guilty pleas. That is, I think, the big thing to take away about this case is that since the prosecution essentially won, they are likely going to have a lot more leverage now against other defendants. A lot of these people are probably going to I would predict that a lot more people are going to take plea deals after seeing how this one turned out. Yeah, or maybe pleading to harsher, maybe maybe prosecutors only offering harsher Could be, yeah. pleas going and, forward. And it's Who interesting knows? because it seems like many of the people facing these charges firmly believe that they did nothing wrong, but it would be reasonable for them to be worried following this, this verdict. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, like I said, Guy Reffitt was likely caught on tape a lot more than the average person, and it's also clear that he planned for things to go a certain way and was very prepared for an insurrection type event. And he even admitted to planning for a violent overthrow of the government. So other people will probably be able to argue that they showed up for a protest and then things got out of hand. Do we know why he wanted? He was very confident. There was a quote that I saw from another person who is in jail awaiting, awaiting trial said that Guy Reffitt was exceedingly overconfident about his case. You could see how, from his perspective, he is going to fight for his country, and Mm -hmm. he went to the Capitol. He did not, you know, shoot anyone or anything. Basically, Mm -hmm. he just went there and got pepper sprayed. So you can see Mm -hmm. how, if you have that in your head, as just, that's all I did, I didn't do anything wrong. Um, Even though that's maybe not the most astute, legal analysis in the world spend a little less time reading legal theory on social media and spend a little more time on (laughs) findlaw.com perfect there was an interesting piece of audio that that was introduced at trial and it was one of the conversations that the son recorded with him where it, it almost feels like the son is sort of trying to lead him into admitting something and he's he's kind of prodding him about taking a gun to the Capitol and like, you know, you knew that that was illegal and you did it anyway, sort of a thing. And Guy Reffitt's response was something that I have heard a lot in the last few years of, of, well, there's a difference between something being illegal and something being wrong. So I think he might've been thinking along those lines as well of like, I'm not wrong. The law is wrong, Mm. but the law is what makes you end up in jail for 60 years. So if we believe Guy Reffitt, there were a lot of other people who were there with the same intentions and the same amount of planning that he did. So I think he's not going to be the last person to be found guilty on charges like this. And there's been a lot of uh, January 6th uh, related stuff in the news. Um, mm-hmm. Speaking of spending a little too much time on social media. <laughs> um, nice one. Uh, I think, Joe, you have you've. You have the extreme displeasure of talking about uh, 
<laughs> some, something very um, odd. Am I next? Okay, yeah. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, it, it seems reasonable to think other people had that same attitude. But, you know, mm-hmm. we also don't entirely know the intentions behind everybody who was there. Right. Yeah. Example A would be Virginia Jenny Thomas, the spouse of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure all of you listening are familiar with the background of this story. It's been all over the news. Uh, Jenny Thomas was, of course, at the January 6th rally. She uh, has said that she left before any of the shenanigans went down. <laughs> and in this case, there is no evidence to the contrary. So to distinguish, we are no longer talking about criminal charges. Ginny Thomas right. is not being charged with anything. She hasn't been accused of breaking any laws whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, what people are talking about instead is some text messages that she sent on and around that day to Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff. And these texts were... Uh, very reminiscent of some of the more extreme right-wing elements that were also. They read like uh, old chain email forwards that you'd get in like 1999. <laughs> A lot of exclamation points, yeah. Yeah, I, and I will say, I, I don't know where this habit of capitalizing the first letter of a word that you want to emphasize came from, but I yeah. do hope that people stop... <laughs> Just random <laughs> capitalization rules. Uh, so that's my... That goes for all the lawyers out there listening who like to capitalize lawyer, attorney, and court. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, she she sent a few text messages. Uh, I'll maybe just read one. So again, I'm talking with the capitalization. So help this great president stand firm, Mark. So help this great president is, is all capitalized, the first letter. Um You are the leader with him who is standing for America's constitutional governance at the precipice. The majority knows Biden on the left is attempting the greatest heist of our history. And both heist and history are capitalized. Uh, So obviously, we're we're not going to get into that, um, the content of it so much. um, But, (laughs) you know, it it sounds very similar to what you see other places. Uh, Mm -hmm. So the issue here is that the texts that she sent are were part of an investigation that Congress is doing into the events of January 6th. And at one point, they wanted to get certain documents about those events, and it went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Mm -hmm. Court, in an eight to one decision, held that it was perfectly fine for Congress to do this. Who is the one vote? (gasps) Gee! Yeah. No, I mean... (laughs) <laughs> Apropos of nothing, it was uh, Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, so you can see that um, you you can see the ethical concerns here. Mm-hmm. And again, we're not talking about any crimes. Uh, yeah, you know, we're not we're not talking about whether Justice Thomas committed any crimes. Uh, clearly, it's mm-hmm. not. He's got a right to issue whatever decision he wants to. The mm-hmm. issue is more whether he had an ethical and moral responsibility to recuse himself from the case. Yeah. You can see the concerns. Um, there is no rule 
that uh, ethics rules that Supreme Court justices need to follow. Federal judges mm -hmm. do have ethical guidelines that they have to follow, but that those do not apply to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is basically on the honor system. And so, again, no civil, no criminal liability, anything like that. It's just a matter of whether moving forward when some of these events continue to be litigated, as they no doubt will, does Justice Thomas have an obligation to recuse himself? Whether you're on one side of the aisle or the other has a large effect on whether you think that he should be recusing himself typically. Um, but that's definitely something to watch moving forward and to see the decisions. Uh, you know, Senator Mitch McConnell the other day defended Justice Thomas vociferously. Other Democratic members of Congress have called on him to resign. I could say that's not going to happen. No. But there may be some additional pressure on the Supreme Court and particularly the Chief Justice John Roberts to see if he needs to revisit the idea of making ethics rules and specifically rules regarding when Supreme Court justices should recuse themselves. I'll also note here that Ginny, Ginny Thomas is not just Clarence Thomas's wife. I mean, she right. is a very prominent conservative activist yeah. and has worked with many groups and has worked with, while never, has, has never worked in the executive branch, she has worked with the, both the W. Bush and the Trump administrations in activism, uh, serving as a liaison with, I think she served as a liaison with the, with the Heritage Foundation in the Bush administration, and she definitely made uh, personnel recommendations to the Trump White House. So mm -hmm. this is not just a, she had Mark Meadows's phone number. Yeah, um, thank you for bringing that up, Andy. That's a great point. Yeah. And, you know, as you can imagine, a lot of Supreme Court justices and their spouses have political interests before they mm -hmm. sit on the bench. So it's not particularly unusual or an ethical violation for Ginny Thomas to have been a conservative donor or fundraiser or mm -hmm. activist. Um, mm -hmm. But the issue is, how much can she continue in those events while while this is ongoing. Yeah. For example, the, the chief justice's <clears throat> spouse is also an attorney and a uh, conservative activist, and she no longer does that work um, because mm -hmm. they decided that it was skirting the line too closely. Well, and all of this kind of, you touched on it a little bit, it all sort of comes at a time when people are already worried about partisanship on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I wonder if, if this might tip things into having some sort of set of actual rules the way that other federal judges do. Yeah, they've, no. they've touched on it briefly. Uh, I think uh, Justice Kagan in testimony before Congress a couple years ago said that the Chief Justice was considering creating ethical rules, but that didn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure. We've seen a lot of the justices publicly defend their integrity and impartiality. They're, they seem to be doing that a lot lately. So I don't know mm -hmm. if that's their response <laughs> and that's the whole of their response or, or if more is coming. And the Supreme Court's involvement with um, legal proceedings around January 6th might not be done just yet. Probably not. No. Because we did just <laughs> because we did get uh, another interesting ruling uh-huh. January around uh the investigation into January 6th involving the uh 
We'll just say the guy who would potentially be the uh, biggest, most prominent uh, criminal <laughs> defendant in this matter if it if it rises mm. if it does eventually rise to that level. Um, uh, we're talking about the former president. Oh um, wow! <laughs> because a federal judge just ruled he didn't rule. I'm sorry, that's a misstatement. He said he wrote in a he wrote in a ruling that former President Trump. And Trump lawyer John Eastman, who had who was one of the people advising him on how to overturn the 2020 election, more likely than not had committed felonies, including obstructing the work of Congress and conspiring to defraud the U- the United States. Mm-hmm. This is Judge David O. Carter of U.S. District Court for the Central District of California. This decision came in an order for Mr. Eastman to turn over more than 100 emails to the congressional committee that is investigating the uh, events in and on and around January 6th. This is the committee that has been handing out um, uh, criminal contempt of Congress uh, <laughs> Citations like candy yeah. to yeah. numerous people in the uh, in 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 President Trump's orbit. Mr. Eastman disagreed with the court's ruling, uh, Natch, uh, but said that he would Natch, Ooh, but, said, but said that he would turn over the documents. People have kind of described these documents as the the blueprint for the quote coup. Mm. But uh, Mr. Eastman had filed suit against the panel, trying to persuade the judge to block the committee's subpoena for these documents. He had said that these were covered by attorney-client privilege. But the committee argued, um, under the legal theory known as the crime-fraud exception, I'm not super, you know, this is, I'm learning here, um, (laughs) said that the privilege did not cover information conveyed from a client to a lawyer if it was part of furthering or concealing a crime. Mm. So that was the uh, the committee's way of trying to get at this information and also use Judge Carter's writings to their further advantage. We'll get to that in a little mm-hmm. bit. Because Judge Carter wrote in ordering the release that the quote, quote, the illegality of the plan was obvious. Our nation was founded on the peaceful transition of power, yada, yada, yada. Ignoring this history, President Trump vigorously campaigned for the vice president to single-handedly determine the results of the 2020 election, mm-hmm. end quote. Including one of those documents from Eastman was a memo written, by, written for lawyers behaving badly, all-star Rudy Giuliani, <laughs> um, <laughs> that stated... That stated, you know, what this whole cockamamie scheme rested on was the theory that Mike Pence could unilaterally reject electors from contested states that day. Mm -hmm. Judge Carter also wrote that the action that Trump and Eastman's actions were, quote, a coup in search of a legal theory. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So pretty strong language. We will yeah. note that we will note that Judge Carter was appointed by uh, Bill Clinton to the bench. Mm. And one thing I wanted to point out about the um, the sort of choice of words that the that the judge had there is that it's, you know he's he's sort of telling it's sort of a wink wink nudge nudge kind of thing because I do think it's important to point out that he said uh, more likely than not. Mm-hmm. 
did something illegal, which is a different standard than what is in criminal law, where you have to be proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So no one can be no one can be pointing to this and saying, well, you know, someone has already concluded that he's guilty, which is not true. Yeah, he noted that he was tasked only with deciding the dispute over the emails, mm-hmm. and that standard was just the more likely than not. Yep, yep, because that's the yeah, that's the civil um, standard. Yeah, and so I guess we'll talk about the effect that this does have on on Trump, which is that right now it doesn't have any practical legal effect mm-hmm. on him. However, a lot of news has been going around that the Congressional Committee is looking for a way to bring President Trump into this and not they mm-hmm. are not content to focus on Steve Bannon, Mark Meadows. They are zeroing in on the on the former president. Mm-hmm. And while they don't have they cannot charge it. That committee cannot charge him with a crime. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, what they can do is make a criminal referral mm-hmm. to the attorney general, to attorney general Merrick Garland at the Department of Justice. Mm-hmm. That eventually then is up to it's a, a it's up to the attorney general whether or not to actually pursue criminal charges against the president. Uh, but it looks like the committee is at least trying to make as strong of a argument as possible if they are to indeed make that referral Mm -hmm. to the attorney general. And then that opens up a whole other can of worms. That's that, you know, there's a part of the Biden administration that is probably in terms of raw political calculation being like, please do not (laughs) send us a referral for, to prosecute the former president, because that is, that is a, that is, it's ultimately, let's be real here, it's ultimately a political decision mm-hmm. whether or not to actually, like, file criminal charges against Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, you can couch it in whatever language you want, but you have to, but they're obviously weighing the the political uh, consequences on them if they do it. Because Donald Trump could probably make the argument, how am I ever supposed to get a fair hearing right. on this? Ever, yeah. In this country. Like, he'd probably want to change the venue to... Patagonia. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Putting it in context between the criminal investigations that are underway, because Donald Trump is being criminally investigated for a variety of things, uh, particularly in New York. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this was not related to a criminal investigation. So it's it's different than that. Um, Yes. And the attorney-client privilege issue requires the preponderance of the evidence standard. And so Mm -hmm. the judge, when determining whether to hand over these documents, was only supposed to figure out, is it more likely than not that he committed a crime? And it's just about a handful of emails. So the congressional investigation is a completely separate matter. Andy, as you were talking about, whether to actually prosecute is a complicated issue Mm -hmm. that... You know, it's it's never an easy thing to go after a sitting president, uh, but also a former president. It's it's there's a lot that goes on. So, yeah, I, w- I would just there's still a lot of irons in the fire. But <laughs> um, but this for now, at least, you know, I, yeah. I, the other thing I'd, I'd mention is that Donald Trump always fights 
giving over documents. Mm-hmm. So every yep. single time that somebody has asked him to hand over a document, he says no, and then he fights it in court. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of par for the course for yeah. him. And we can expect this in any legal matter that Donald Trump is involved in. Yeah, I mean, I think all of this is just to say that as uh, sick as we are of talking about it, we're not done talking about this stuff. So we'll <laughs> we'll have to keep an eye on it. <laughs> and that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Find Laws, Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com. 